0: Hello, and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, staying positive and testing negative. Today, we hear from Gary Pope, co-founder of Insight Strategy and creative agency Kids Industries, who discusses why some kids' brands are more popular than others on YouTube and gives us some of his predictions for the year ahead. Plus, film data researcher and analyst Stephen Follows who managed to get his hands on three years worth of Netflix viewing stats and has set up a new service to tell the industry what he's learned from them. Gary Pope is the co-founder of Kids Industries, a UK-based, insight-led strategy and creative agency that focuses on the family. Fresh from discussing the subject at last year's Animation Business Conference from the CMC, Gary spoke to C21 about the things kids' brands and animation studios need to know before they take their animated series to YouTube. Before we went on to chat about some of the key trends Gary expects in the kids' media industry in 2021, I asked him if there's a common thread that links successful properties on YouTube. Well, I
1: mean, the the obvious thing, obviously, is, is, is that it's preschool and it's younger. And, you know, a parent can use the digital babysitter as an endless record player. You know, Moonbug have got two, three hour long playlists. You press play and it just plays for as long as you want it to play. So, you know, there is something, isn't there about, we all know this from, from perhaps children in our, our families or, or, or our own, children love repetition. And there's some pretty robust reasons why they, they enjoy repetition. It's the idea of prediction and being able to, to get some kind of uh, little, little, little dopamine kick for knowing what's going to come next. And that's particularly true of preschool. So, you know, you can make lots of these, you know, lots of these episodes of Baby Bum or Melon or Blippi or whatever it might be. And, you know, you can almost loop it back and you're on the same episode again. And actually younger children are just going to watch. Nursery Rhymes, you know, you don't need a narrative. It's a song. And they sing and, they, and the children will dance in front of the, of the, of the, uh, of the computer, have a lovely time. It, it's, I think it's about parental ease and it's about preschool. I think actually that those are the two things it's much harder much harder right now in 2021 to make a a show for older children which is what you might think of as a traditional show now that's changing and that's changing quite rapidly i think that we're seeing actually longer form content start to get a little bit of traction. We're starting to see, you know, that, that um, what shall I call it, that migration of the audience from, from those more traditional platforms or other OTT platforms to the one they love. They love YouTube. I think there's a, there was a report this morning, 56% of children are, are, in, uh, in first world countries around the world prefer the platform to any other. So it's their platform of choice, no question. So if it's a platform of choice, it's only a matter of time before their consumption becomes similar to the consumption they have on Any other platform? Because at the end of the day, I can get that YouTube platform through the same devices. So the difference in 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 platform, I think, is becoming less, which means that the consumption patterns are probably becoming more similar.
0: And say I've just produced a twenty-six times eleven-minute animated show for um, for kids for a traditional broadcaster. Is it simple enough to say that if I chop those down a little bit, and with the permission of the broadcaster put them on youtube then then that's enough or do i need to make separate content
1: well this is this is this is interesting i think that's a that's a great first step and obviously you need to make sure you've got the permission of whoever your co-production partners are but what you need to be able to you know it's about a channel isn't it it's about aggregating that audience across lots of different content there's no reason why you can't be clever and you know design your content write your creative in such a way as you can start to chop it up so you know, if you think about something like Baby Bum, you've got a little narrative, you've got a little song. You know, it, there's a little bit of action and then there's a song or there's, I don't know, maybe there's a lovely show called Moon and Me that has a big section in the middle, which is all in Storyland. So, you know, why wouldn't you have the full episode? Because the children love the full episode and then have the section in the middle, which is just Storyland. All of a sudden you've got two apps out of one. You know, you've got 33 minutes out of 22. There's not, nothing wrong with that at all. I and mean, you build the channel profile and, of course, you get the subscribers and subscribers beget subscribers. So you need to think wider than just chopping up that 26, 11s into, into different bits. You might have to start thinking about, okay, how can I repurpose this? How can I make lists of the best of all the songs, the favourite characters, whatever it might be, to create a whole channel experience, which ultimately I suppose is a brand experience, isn't it?
0: Does every kids' TV show kind of naturally translate to YouTube, do you think? Or are there library content that producers and distributors might already have lying around that they have now have the rights to? When they're looking at, okay, which one, which brand should I look at putting all the episodes on YouTube, what are they most likely to have success with?
1: It's stuff that I can snack on at the moment. As I said a few moments ago, that is starting to shift a little bit. Right now, it's, it's about snacking. And one of the things that that um, that we discovered recently, which has got my interest in my favourite shows, um, Wacky Racers and Scooby-Doo, you know, if you think about those two shows, both, both both wonderful shows, both, you know, of a certain vintage, markedly different. And they're markedly different because Wacky Racers will fit lovely into YouTube because actually it's, it's here we go, high octane, we know what we're getting, it's a race, there's lots of shenanigans, so-and-so does this, such-and-such does this, you end the race, happy days. It, you're in, you're on, you, you're going. And you could just chop out those little race bits or you could have favorite smashes. It just works because it's, it's not necessarily... Narrative led, it's more concept led, I, I suppose. Of course, there's you know, Penelope Pitstop's trying to get through away from Dick Darsley and all the rest of it, but that, that's always the case. What we're watching is who's going to do what with their flying machine to do something a little bit crazy. But then, if we look at something like Scooby Doo, which is 22, 21, 22 minutes, and it is a you know, it's there's an eight point narrative in the show, isn't there? You know, they arrive. invariably invariably they arrive at night in a foggy place near the coast and there's somebody terrorising, monster terrorising uh, the people of the the town and then they go and find them and then they have to set up this great trap and then this trap goes terribly wrong and then they're uncovered, and if it wasn't for those pesky kids, and then they're all in the, the diner later having milkshakes. There's this very set sequence of events that happens in Scooby Doo. And it's lovely, but you've got to sit and watch the episode. If you try and just take a little chunk out of Scooby Doo, or you try and chop it up. Um, and I actually had a look at Scooby Doo Channel a little while ago. It's very difficult. It's kind of non sequiturs, they just sit on their own in, in, a, in a rather strange way. So I think that, you know, there isn't good and bad content. It, that is more or less suitable, I think it's different. It's different. And you have to think about and have the child particularly front of mind when you're creating content for for YouTube because right now they watch things differently on, on the platform. You know, there's only one way that, that YouTube Kids is going. Why would I want to go anywhere else? It's free, it's there. I can stomach a few ads, that's fine. Or I can subscribe at a less rate than most. Content which offers, and this is what, you know, a big trend that we saw emerging last year through all the nastiness that was last year um, into the bright sunshine that is this year, is the edtech and educational content movement. And let's call it edutainment, terrible word, but, you know, I, I'm an ex-teacher, and as a teacher, I would... I would have given my high teeth for the sort of content that is available video-wise now to convey concepts, to educate, to learn, to extend a child's understanding of the world around them and to help their learning outcomes. That content, I'm particularly thinking about some of the lovely content that came out of the BBC during the first lockdown, which was, you know, they they literally spun on a penny, got loads of stuff out, and it was good, engaging, entertaining content, and it was free. and actually. You know, child, child, as long as children are engaged, they're going to enjoy it. So I would imagine that we will see. Um, let's put my money where my mouth is. I bet you're a tenor, Nico, that by the end of this year, we'll see YouTube having risen significantly. We'll have iPlayer having risen significantly, particularly around that edutainment piece and actually we'll see a consolidation of all of those other kind of particularly those those children SVOD platforms and even AVOD platforms ultimately because I think you know that there, there, there is really only one game in town now particularly particularly in sort of the UK the US Australia Canada
0: so has there been a bit of an attitudinal shift in terms of how screen time is viewed in terms of I it not it no longer being the boogeyman
1: yeah, I think it has. But do you know what, though? I think the community has worked really hard at that as well because those that, that love children's television because it's our, our calling or our profession or what we want, to, you know, children media, you know, we're very aware of that. And we understand that the the platform is not, the the, the screen is not the boogeyman. The content can be the boogeyman. And actually, you know, the, the industry has, has regu- self-regulated itself to ensure that, actually, you think about the kind of content, and I can only speak for the UK, but you think about the, the, the quality of content that comes out of this country, out of the United Kingdom, is phenomenal, it's second to none, it's brilliant. So, you know, provided producers are putting children first and parents are more familiar and comfortable with the benefits of a screen, which they became last year, um, I think, yeah, the, uh, the boogeyman is no more, Um, But that's not to say that children should sit in front of a screen all day because they bloody well shouldn't.
0: Any other attitudinal shifts or changes in behaviour that Kids Industries is kind of (laughs) eyeing for 2021?
1: Yeah, lots. Where do you want to start? Um, uh, (laughs) Yeah, what a a difference a year makes. Um, Look, there there are so very many things, aren't there? And, you know... Every every year, actually, we produce a, uh, a little trends trends document looking forward. And one of the things that our strategy director has always been very keen to make sure that we, as a business, are very clear on is that you know trends don't start on the first of January, you know, because that's just not the nature of, of 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 the world that they emerge. And we saw you know catalysts for change uh, happen in micro or macro events. And I think last year we saw a macro event that caused a bunch of micro events that have changed an awful lot of how an awful lot of people see things. The movement towards inclusion, which, you know, has been gathering pace over, over the last five, ten years, but really started to, to take hold, I think is, for me personally, is incredibly exciting. I think the movement towards including far more um, diverse characters, whether, whatever their race, gender, sexuality, doesn't matter in children's content is incredibly powerful. I think broadcasters, Nickelodeon particularly, have been very brave in that regard. In Disney traditionally would be very kind of reserved in that way, or embracing the fact that we're a diverse species on, on in a diverse planet. And, you know, we have a responsibility to ensure that, you know, the next generation grow up in the best place they can. Um, and that means embracing the changes that are emerging. So, you know, seeing the fact that um, I can't remember what the movie I think it's is it Love and something, the new four movie. But Valkyrie being the first Marvel character that is LGBTQ+ is a it's a great thing. It's a brilliant thing. So we'll see a lot more of that. A lot more inclusion. There's lots of other things. You know, there's the. The activism thing, so, you know, Greta Thunberg's been sort of out of the picture hasn't she, for a little while, but we think about Gen Alpha, those are children born in 2010 through to, will be 2024 if we say there are 15 years in generation. We know that they are, we did a big piece of research with WWF, we know they are the most activist orientated generation we've ever had so here's the kids that are coming through now right behind the teens that you know got right behind the um Greta Thunberg and the movement there for 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 against climate change that's only going to gather a pace as well and all these things are going to sip into our media because they must it's very simple
0: yeah I was looking back at previous pieces you've written for C21 over the years and there was one from 2015 um talking about the the conversation around gender norms in kids TV. Yeah. Yeah. And that was very much about, you know, blue for boys, pink for girls. But you, you did mention how, you know, there was a growing movement towards gender being seen as a spectrum amongst kids themselves. And it was actually the parents who, you know, where the stereotypes lie. Has that, change since then has that been slower or quicker than you were expecting
1: i haven't looked at the article nico so i, I hope i said something along the lines of it doesn't matter they can choose whatever they want to choose but but and it's is it a about it's an and and boys will tend to orientate towards things which are fast and and rugged and they run 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 and shout 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 Whereas girls tend to talk to things like communicate and it's that I think is still true, but that's irrelevant in terms of what they want to consume. You know, the the the, the physiology, the biology, the 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 orientation of a, of a of a child as an individual shouldn't be judged. Can't be judged. Why would it be judged? They should be able to do what they want to do. It's society that puts particular shackles around them. And I think yes, it has changed and continued to change. And you know, movements like um, toys like me and and different different movements like that where. You know, they have had to be vocal about things, but we have seen, I think, again, last year, an acceleration. And the fact that schools themselves now are, you know, will, will be totally inclusive to the nature to which one, one identifies. So, look, I mean, there's always going to be prejudice, isn't there? But it's a good thing that we're getting to where we are now. Has it been fast enough? No, it hasn't been fast enough. Has it been accelerating? Yes. Has what happened last year supported that acceleration? I think it has, because I think people have put their arms around people and understood that we're all in this shit year together, and we need to do something about it.
0: Gary Pope. Prominent film data researcher Stephen Follows last year launched VOD Clickstream a free service to share what he calls is groundbreaking data and analysis on the notoriously guarded subscription video-on-demand sector. In order to develop the project, Stephen acquired historical data charting user activity on Netflix over a -a three-and-a-half-year period, from January 2016 to June 2019. He then assembled an expert team of data scientists and astrophysicists with experience of working with large quantities of data to analyze it. In recent years, Netflix has begun sharing a little bit more intel about the content it says is popular with its subscribers, though this inevitably only extends to positive info about its originals. I began my conversation with Stephen by asking him to what extent we should question the data that Netflix gives us.
2: I wouldn't say there's an issue with what they provide for us. I don't have any reason to suspect it's anything, but... But the truth, where it's hard for filmmakers is that when in most other realms, most of the windows of release, we have many ways of getting signals as to what people want. You know, we have all sorts of different ways of, of signaling what's successful, what's not, what how audiences are responding to it. But on, on SVOD, it's kind of a, it's like a black hole. There's just no information that comes out of it. Because you can't even go to a, a movie theater and see how people are responding because everyone's you know, uh, account on whatever streaming platform is unique to them. Um, If I I look, if I use my shared TV with my wife and uh, I'm accidentally on her Netflix account, uh, everything goes pink and all the things I want to watch are gone and vice versa. And so it's very, very hard to get a sense of what people are watching and how it's going down. And so the streaming platforms uh, have all come from technology. And so in the technology world, you don't, share. There's less of a community sense than I think there has been in film. And so it's not so much that they're anti-sharing, they just don't see why they should. And there isn't a strong business case for them to do so. And so for a long time, they've been battling the film industry and, and, and filmmakers and also television and comedy. And you're right, more recently, they've they've opened up a little bit more and they're, they're sort of talking about what's top 10 on their platform. But I, I think whilst that's great that they're opening up more data, they're going from desert to a drop of water and I think we we need more than this like to do our jobs it's it's not that we only use data we also use creativity but with only creativity it's quite an expensive risky business and even what they're sharing at the moment is I mean it's only good for press releases it's it's not stuff that we could actually use as film professionals
0: So tell me a bit about VOD Clickstream, and in terms of the data that it's using, where that data comes from and how it was sourced.
2: So the Clickstream that's in our name, it refers to uh, a huge fire hose of data of of audience behaviors, people's clicks and searches and things. Um, Where that comes from is that uh, over the last few years, many people have opted in to share anonymously share their data as to where they're going and how they're clicking. In return for use of free services and plugins and things like that and it's all around the world and the clickstream itself is a huge industry outside of what we're talking about here what we're doing is is minuscule in, in comparison to what people use it for um largely it's used for things like you know if you want to run ads to sell red shoes you don't want to be advertising red shoes you want to be looking at where people came from one or two steps before so you can reach them earlier in their buying journey and so this data set has existed for a lot, for a while, and uh, I n- I've known about it for a few years, and I've been talking to the data suppliers, but it was always impossible because the quote was about fifty thousand dollars a month uh, with a six month minimum, and uh, needless to say, that's way way out of the realm of of what I have, but also because I don't I don't think it's worth that to our industry, and it, and my my guess, and this is just a guess, but my guess of why it's so expensive. Uh, is that if I were a hedge fund and I could buy clickstream data, I would be able to see how many people had been signing up or cancelling plans on various platforms, streaming platforms. And so then I might be able to use that to, to make a fair assessment as to whether the next earnings report is going to be higher or lower and then I could sort of invest or short the stock. So because, there were, because I think that there are these big sort of players in the market, it meant that someone like myself, who's trying to do community research, couldn't get a look in, like, couldn't buy the data and they weren't going to give it to me. Um, so over the last few years, I've been sort of talking to the suppliers. In 2019, there was a big hoo-ha in the, in the clickstream industry where all the people that were doing this were opted in, but I don't think many of them had been fully aware of necessarily how much the, the data, the clickstream shares, And there were various security researchers that started writing more about it. And last summer it sort of blew up. There was lots of articles saying, did you know that, that this is the data that you're sharing? And so the, most of the suppliers decided to shut down and it sort of ended. There are various things of clickstream out there at the moment. It's why flat screen TVs are so cheap. Because they are scanning what you're watching and selling that data, not to me, but to other people. But it sort of ended. And so towards the end of 2019, I went back to these data suppliers and said, look, this is a historic period of time now. You can't get any new data, but it's still useful for us as filmmakers. It's not as good as live data, but it still might be useful. Can we sort something out? And so I talked to them for a little bit and then they gave me access to their data, just the the Netflix.com data. So what I end up with is about 610 million data points. Each one is a, an action by a user. Uh, it's completely anonymized. All I have is the country. I don't have any information about them or their IP address or anything like that. And um, it's all on netflix.com, but that means it's around the world. So this three and a half year data set tells us so much about what people were watching and how they watch it. And we've only just started to sort of scratch the surface of what it can do for us. And it's worth saying, actually, there are limitations to the data. It's not perfect. I mean, it's not live for a start. It would be lovely to see what people were watching two minutes ago, two days ago, but it's not. Um, and secondly, it's only for desktop and laptop users due to the nature of the plugins and things, which Netflix have said are about 25% of their audience. So it's still, we still got a big chunk of, of the audience.
0: And so some examples of the, the findings. So you've got topics like how did the office perform on netflix and that goes into quite granular detail about even you know the popularity of specific episodes on netflix in the states and and we do know that that is one of that has been one of netflix's obviously most popular shows and it's now going on peacock so they don't have that anymore so yeah in terms of some of the the findings what have been some of the most interesting or perhaps surprising findings
2: well i think one of the interesting things having studied film data for a decade sometimes most of the time you find what you think you're going to find and then i don't know maybe one in ten times you find something very different and it's hard it's impossible to know which it's going to be and so as we sort of approach this project we didn't know if we were going to look at SVOD and say oh yeah we know oh that makes sense or wow it's a completely different world and i think we found examples of of each So I mean, the office is a great example, you know, all of the episodes were available for the whole time we have data. So it becomes quite easy for us to be able to compare episodes because they were all available every time. Uh, And what we see there is that it's the fourth season. That's the biggest season. Uh, It's often voted as one of the best seasons. So it's not surprising, but one of the things that was a bit surprising to me, at least was that we still conceptualize television within seasons. That's how it's commissioned. That's how it's broadcast and that's how it's sold on physical media or even on, on TVOD when you go on iTunes or whatever. But the way people watch it, you wouldn't be able to see. And we, one of the things on, our, on, our, on the site, we've put all of the episodes, as you said, with all of the viewing, all of the popularity. Um, and if you didn't know where the seasons began and end, you wouldn't be able to identify them. Because it's not like they all sort of go up towards the end of a season all down and there's sort of, you know, there are what well, eight, nine seasons of the office. It's not like there's eight, nine peaks on there. You just wouldn't be able to tell. And I think that speaks to how people watch content as a sort of stream of, of unending content. And it might have been made in batches, but nobody cares. In the same way, if you buy something else from a supermarket or a baker, you don't care which one was baked together. You you just create what you want. Um, So I found that kind of interesting. And that says a lot about how television might continue to evolve. And it might well be that we get uh, what is the equivalent of, you know, like EastEnders, where they just, it's a machine to make content rather than a delineated season. And on the movies front, uh, I wasn't surprised to find out how big Disney was, but I was surprised how big (laughs) Disney was. Uh, It was the majority of the top titles were Disney films. And to the, to, the, to the degree to which, had we known it live? You know, had had we known that? And then the Disney deal that happened in the US was, a, was agreed in something like 2012, but didn't kick in until 2016. And then within a year or so of it starting, uh, Disney said, right, we're ending it. And that was sort of surprised lots of people because they thought, well, it's just took you so long to get it together and now it's starting. Why would you end it? And, and looking at the data we have, I can see exactly why. Because... Disney were, I mean, they were obviously being paid for it. Reportedly, it was $350 million a year. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the figure that's been reported. But that is quite small in comparison to the massive positive effect it had for Netflix and Netflix's audience. And so there must have been a point in the business, in the Disney boardrooms or something like that where they're thinking, wow, we're giving away this, we're selling this content at a low cost relatively to its value. And we're also strengthening our biggest rival if we ever choose to set up a disney a streaming platform which of course they did with disney plus so just the the sheer domination of of disney is kind of crazy and you know we see that at the at the in the cinemas like you, you the biggest films take the vast majority of the income the top 50 films of each year take about three quarters of the box office revenue we know that um but i was kind of hoping secretly as a sort of creative and filmmaker and independent film fan that it would also show a long tail. You know, it would also show that loads of tiny movies are being watched and things. And it's actually even more skewed towards the bigger films than the box office. So if you look at the box office figures or you look at what's on, in, in, on the cinema, when they open again, uh, you'll, You'll see how it's dominated by a small number of huge titles. Just remember that Netflix is more so than that, or at least was over our study period. So it's, you know, things can evolve and change. But it does does seem to be that these big streaming platforms, they may they may license independent content, smaller content. They may show it, it may get watched, but fundamentally their business is in huge, culturally significant content. And I don't know where that puts the independent filmmaker. I mean, independent filmmakers will survive, but it's. I was hoping, you know, to discover that, oh my God, it turns out that independent films is what makes Netflix work, and we can all be sure into the future that we're going to be, um, uh, you know, have a safe uh, haven for our content, but no. <laughs> slightly less, it's slightly worse than the box office at the, is at the moment. What is interesting at the moment is that we have... An oligopoly of a small number of of companies that are heavily regu- uh, heavily um, managed by a small number of people at the top. The people at the top of Netflix have been there since the start. Apple uh, is controlled by Tim Cook, I and mean, maybe Disney's a bit more of a public company, but still, there's a small number of people that have a huge amount of power. So you could imagine uh, that, or sorry, same for Amazon as well. You you could imagine that if any of those people chose to support independent film, they could go against the numbers and they could um choose to support them and certainly amazon with the you know people like ted hope working there and the kind of stuff they've funded has been quite interesting they've sort of gone to sundance and bought everything one year um but fundamentally i don't see that in the numbers that we've seen that that would be anything more than a sort of uh, a desire and a, a, a positioning play the way that the Irishman was in theatres just so it could try and be eligible for an Oscar. You know, there, there may be non-financial reasons for buying a lot of independent content or producing a lot of independent content, but there's not strong financial reason from the point of view of streamers, from what we've seen in our data, at least. With with the US, we saw that there is most of the content available on television. Most of the television shows were US-made, but not all of them. But the vast majority of the ones that were watched were us uh, made. And so if you, for example, if you, let's say that you watch a different TV show every day and you just watch loads and loads of content, if conversely, if I watch just one cooking show and I watch nothing else on Netflix, but both of us subscribe, then you could argue that the, the cooking show is, is a more valuable piece of content than just any one random piece that you're watching, because you're unlikely to leave the platform if you, if you're one of your shows disappears, because you've got loads of others. Whereas if it's the only thing I watch, then perhaps it's how I'm rationalizing the value in my head. and so one of the things that we're going to do is to have a look at the value of, of smaller content or more niche content. so that's often foreign language or more niche topics. what we've seen at the moment is the the volume is still in the mainstream what we want to try and understand is well if let's say that they took off everything that wasn't in the top 100 of everything comedy movies tv how much would they actually lose? And that's a mixture of of sort of views because the the vast majority of the views, half all the content is 97% of the views. So you could lose half of of the content over the time period we looked at and only lose an insignificant number of views. But I guess you'd also maybe struggle with uh, the image. You know, one of the things that Amazon does, particularly interestingly in the States, is they have over 10,000 movies available and Netflix only has about two or 3,000. Once you're out the top hundred films, do you really notice, or is it about a marketing play? Is it about saying we have the largest volume library by two or three fold than our rivals? These are sort of more to do with these big level business strategies, and no one will quite know whether you're right or wrong because there's no counterfactual. Uh, there's only rare examples like Quibi where we go, oh, yep, that definitely didn't work. Quite often, it's hard to disentangle, you know, X from Y. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to sort of fully understand. But there is one thing actually that you said I, I really wanted to bring up, which I thought was interesting, which is um, we have an internal conversation. Myself and the theoretical physicists have been pulling the data apart. Um, I come from the film world, so I'm very under, I'm very familiar with the idea of different territories and different distribution rights. You know, the the, the German and the French um, release will be by different people, perhaps at different times. I'm very comfortable with that. Whereas if you were creating the entire industry today from scratch, you wouldn't create territories. Territories are irrelevant. What perhaps matters is language, or maybe even it's just making everything available to everyone and letting them sort themselves out. That's certainly how things like Dropbox works. You know, um, it's as long as they can process your card payment and it's legal, they don't care where you are because their content's global. And so the push for them from these huge global streamers is obviously to try and create global content they own they can show in all their territories because that's the best value, you only pay for it once and you own it everywhere. Whereas the industry wants to be able to sell it separately, you know, the industry wants to say, okay, we're going to release it in theatres and it's home territory, we're going to give the SVOD rights to to you, but only for a fixed period of time. But then in these other far flung countries, you can just have it whenever you want. That's something that we yet to see how it's going to evolve. I mean, Netflix and Apple and Disney are, are working on 10, maybe 50 year time horizons. And the the move is definitely, the, the, the direction of travel so far has definitely been towards a global market for content. We're all disconnected from each other physically, but we're also much more connected because we're all suddenly on Zoom and Skype and whatever else. And so that's taking away country borders compared to 100 years ago, where it's only as far as you could walk, fly, drive, cycle, whatever. And so maybe that is the future of content. Maybe these Frameworks that we're used to understanding them will become obsolete, and and by frameworks I mean territories, I mean seasons, uh, maybe even movies. You know, the the way that a movie is a set length of time because it's about going to a place that you need to then, you know, it's hard to go to the loo. You can't pause it. It's got to be part of a social night out and things like that. You know, when you start letting go of that, you start having things like Bandersnatch, which is choose your own adventure, or you have The Irishman, which is I think 20, 28 hours long, something like that. I don't know. I haven't got to the end yet. Um, and so maybe we move towards this homogenous, massive stream of, of uh, non-delineated content. I'd, I don't know what will happen, but uh, that certainly suits the business model of global, epically huge companies much more than the model we have at the moment where we have these delineations of movies and TV and we have these delineations of territories but who knows they don't always get what they want maybe the industry I mean look at how the, the theatres are pushing back against compressed windows of release in the states maybe the industry will push back on these territory things as well
0: I wanted to ask you also about your business model so at launch it's a free it's free to sign up and free to become a member and have access to the latest analysis is that going to be the case going forward? And in terms of, yeah, are you hoping to turn this into a similar kind of subscription service that people um, subscribe to?
2: Honestly, I don't know. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more than that, but I, I don't know yet. My, my instinct is I want I want to sh- I want to discover how the film actually works, and I want to share it with everyone for them to use it how they think is best. And that's my that's my driving force behind all the work I've done. And in the vast majority of the work I've done, I've been able to do it for free. And I think that makes it easier. It means I can go off and do it. I don't need to ask permission. I don't need to, you know, if it evolves and changes, then I don't have to go back to funders or a boss and say, um, it's it's not what I've, I found something else. Uh, it's interesting still, but it's different. Um, and also it, it it sort of democratizes the information, which is what I'm after. I want information to be free. However, obviously there are costs, you know, and it does cost something um and so my hope is that we can keep this free my hope is that it can stay as a community project and you know if I need help uh, the fact that it's free hopefully I can reach out to people and say hey I need someone to help moderate the forum or do some work here or there um I have no immediate plans and I have no long-term plans to to change that model at the moment but I'm also not really making long-term plans I'm waiting to see uh what we can do with it because the industry itself i mean there's there's so much stuff that i've discovered over the years that other people have discovered way before me but because most of the people that do what i do are paid by you know a studio or an investor or you know some sort of someone who's who's got a, a an incentive to keep things private i'm the first person to sort of publish it and then i'll chat to people and they'll say oh yeah yeah we know that and i'm like well why didn't you tell us <laughs> why why do we all have to be reinventing the wheel separately especially given that most people in the in the film and TV communities don't have the resources to access you know professional analysis or hire someone or get the data or whatever so my hope is that we'll keep it free I have, I have no intention of changing that right now. I am always looking for ways of of funding community research but i've also got quite a high bar in the sense i don't want to run ads and i don't want to to i don't mind doing sponsorship but i don't want to let any of the content to be influenced by anything so it tends to end up free because it's the least stress, but it's certainly not sustainable. <laughs> and this one was supported by, I mean, I, I, I wrote a report into horror films, uh, uh, I don't know, three or four years ago called the horror report. It's like 200 pages. It's lots of analysis just on horror films. And it's released on a, release a pay what you want model where you can, it's a minimum of a pound, but uh, you can literally set your own price and then pay and then download it. That gave me a, a, a a war chest to be able to go off and do unusual projects like this It wasn't very big wasn't very much but it was something and i'm yeah so i need to find another sort of model like that in in the near future to be able to do the next project like this
0: Stephen follows that's all for this episode there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow but in the meantime stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following c21 online on mobile and on social media thanks for listening